Good morning, everyone. We're going to pull it together, all right? I was looking at the calendar and realizing how quickly we're coming near the end of these minor prophets. Today we go to a prophet named Zephaniah. Here's what's really notable about it and what you'll miss if you're reading it just in the Bible is there is a, not only a time lapse, but there is a huge cultural lapse or seismic shift on the landscape between Zephaniah and Haggai, which is the next minor prophet to come. If you're reading straight through, you're not going to catch this. But this is Zephaniah, I mean, the last of the pre-exilic prophets. What does that mean? What does pre mean? Before. What do you think exilic means? What word do you hear in there? Exile. So, the last of the prophets before the exile. Now, if you've been with us for some time, hopefully the significance of what the exile is has been deeply soaked into your bones. But in case you've forgotten or in case you're newer with us or, or just don't know, at the beginning of this, we talked about two key dates. Really, did I just like yeah, utterly die? Hey, uh, check with Tony in there. Oh, there we go. I'm back. All right, fantastic. Two key dates by which I encourage you to think of all biblical history. It's not because these are the only two important dates or only dates worth knowing, but if you have these two anchor points, you can really divide biblical history into three eras around those dates that give you the major moves. And the key dates are this. Well, quiz time. What are the key dates? 587 B.C., 70 A.D. We're going to highlight into 587 B.C. 587 B.C. is the date of the Babylonian exile. Now, this had been building up for 20-some-odd years. There had been some issues and, and attacks and sieges and carrying off of people before that, but 587 is the date you really need to remember. Zephaniah is the last prophet speaking before that Babylonian exile. He is the last of the prophets, really, in the, the minor prophet order, talking about the Assyrian crisis that we've been speaking so heavily about. And so what you'll see in this prophet is it's like the death rattle. There's the death throes, if you will, that we finally come to the end, and yet with this gleaming hope of what's going to come beyond it. So I want to encourage you to open to Zephaniah. We are going to read it today, but I'm going to save the read-through more to the end. And what I'd like to do instead is just talk a little bit about who this guy is and, and color between the lines for you to help you situate things. Now, I always find the meaning of the prophet's names and, and Hebrew words fascinating. And you don't really need to know this, but they serve as a mind anchor for me. I think Zephaniah's name speaks somewhat into the nature of what his message is about. Because his name means God hides. And the idea of God hiding shouldn't be understood like intransitively as like God is in the state of hiding from us. Rather, that God is hiding something away, right? I can hide or I can hide something, right? You see the difference between the two? 
that God is hiding something away, that God is hidden something. Zephaniah means God is hidden. Now, I've shared this with you before, that, that Hebrew is actually a very vocabulary-poor language. Within the Hebrew Bible, you probably only have about 4,000 words, uh, different words, give or take, which doesn't mean that they were simplistic in their thinking. It's just a different way that they used language. In Hebrew, words became very pregnant with meaning, in that one word could communicate several different ideas. And one of the big challenges of, well, translating the Hebrew Bible is trying to figure out what nuance do they mean by this word or what puns do they mean by a shared grouping of nuances. Does that make sense? This word hide, and I think you can find some of the the, the, the semantic connections on this. Um, It can also mean protect. So Zephaniah's name can mean God protects. It can also mean treasures, God treasures. And, and of course, maybe you can logically see some of the connections between that. If you have treasure, you protect treasure. If you have something valuable, you, you hide it away or bury it so it can't be found. And you can see how it kind of works in that Hebrew mindset, if you will. But why this is significant and maybe how it might serve as a mind anchor for us today is the message of Zephaniah is that God is going to bring judgment on Jerusalem. Now, this is nothing new, but we're going to hear it not only with grand sweeping language, maybe unlike what we've heard already, but we're also going to hear it at a time when Israel was moving from, shall I say, lazy mode to crisis mode. Because see, when things are prosperous, the words of the prophets fall on deaf ears. But when Assyria is standing at your gate and the things are rising up and your nation is crumbling before your eyes, the words suddenly start to take on a very potent meaning. Would you agree? And so this is what you're going to see in Zephaniah. And there's some things I could suggest maybe out of his message about how the name relates. Maybe what you're going to see, and you can read it through on your own later and you tell me what you think, but... But maybe you're going to see God, despite the promise of calamity and collapse, promising Judah that you are still treasured to me. Maybe you're going to see that even though you're all going to be carried out into exile, I am still going to protect the promise that I've made to you and protect a remnant of my people through whom I am going to actually accomplish the work that Israel was always intended for. Maybe it's going to mean something like, even though you are going to be overthrown by the Babylonians, I am going to hide some of you away who are going to remain, shall I say, unfound or untouched. I can't say unaffected, but again, set aside. It's this idea of a remnant, that even though God is going to allow Assyria, or Babylon, I should say, to come sweeping in, I am still going to be faithful. Because I've promised to your father Abraham that you would be a great nation, that you would have many descendants, and that all people on earth would be blessed through you. I have not backed off of that promise. I am still in covenant relationship with you, even though the sky seems to be fallen, the earth seems to shake, and the very foundations of the earth seem to be crumbling underneath you. 
Look at how Zephaniah opens, just to capture the sense of how he uses language in this way. I'm going to start at verse 2 and then circle back. I will sweep everything away from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will only have heaps of rubble when I cut off men from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That sounds pretty extreme. Would you agree? And, and would you agree with me that it even seems to carry like the connotations that we often associate with like Judgment Day? or something like that. I'm going to share a little bit with you about how Hebrew prophets speak. They love hyperbole. And of course, the New Testament prophets like Jesus love hyperbole too. Maybe you've heard the prophet Jesus speak this way. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It would be better for you to lose an eye than to go into hell with both eyes intact. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. There was actually, I think I've shared this with you, an early um, uh, uh, Christian named Origen who became a, a prominent leader in the church. Third, maybe fourth century, uh, forgive me if my date's a little garbled there, but he actually uh, castrated himself wanting to deal with his lust issue and follow Jesus that adamantly. And we can laugh at that because, well, because how can you not? But but my gosh, if we only took God that seriously, that we would even entertain his words like that. We just scoff them off. But they love hyperbole, or maybe this one has messed you up. I tell you the truth, unless you hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your children, etc., etc., you cannot be my disciple, right? It would seem that when Zephaniah is talking about the earth being wiped away, keep in mind that he's talking to the people in the context of the Babylonian onslaught impending upon them. And before you rush to like some kind of like asteroids are smashing the earth and volcanoes are exploding out of it and, or, or, or like Noahic flood kind of things, maybe start at a place of just understanding that he's talking about the devastation that's finally going to be wreaked upon the people of God and how Babylon is going to become the new superpower taking over the known world of its day. All right? Now, we can go X squared and X cubed like we've talked about and show how the later prophets will expand on that idea, but that's the nature of this prophet. He is talking in these grandiose terms about what's going to happen at this exile. Make sense? Now, the prophets have been warning about this for 200 years, give or take, maybe 250. Arguably, you can go back to Deuteronomy, to the time of Moses, where Moses himself even prophesied this. So you can go back like 900 years, if you want, or 800 years, give or take. But Zephaniah is kind of an interesting character in the storyline, because just like we've seen with Jonah, God is patient, and God will relent from sending calamity. So Jonah was sent with a message to Assyria, to Nineveh, and 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Do you remember what Nineveh did? They repented. The whole nation, it said, even the animals, right? So the shepherds are out there putting sackcloth on the sheep or something like that. I don't know. 
but they all repented and God staved off judgment on Nineveh, even though he said it in no uncertain terms. The same thing has been happening through Judah's history. Now, it's important to know a couple of kings, and I want to read Zephaniah 1.1 to you now. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, all right, um, that could be a reference um, to someone's name, but names often have significance. Cush is what's considered Upper Egypt, which is not north, but south, because the Nile runs that way. So this is like Ethiopia. And so there might be a deep, like African history in Zephaniah's line here, um, believe it or not. And that's not uncommon because Moses had a wife who was from this area too and things like that. Point of interest to me, nothing more. The son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. It's a lot of names right there, but there's two that I want you to know, and one, hopefully, that stands out significantly. Do you remember Hezekiah? He factors prominently into Isaiah's prophecy, into Micah's prophecy, but this is one of these kings of Israel that you can read about in First and Second Kings chronology, but he was one of these rare kings of Israel who did what was called right in the sight of God. You know, you have that constant refrain that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah was different. And what was notable about Hezekiah's reign is this is one of the first times that Assyria laid siege to Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is quaking in his boots, fearing and knowing that the inevitable is at hand and Jerusalem is going to fall to this tyrant nation. God miraculously delivers them and their history continues to go on. Zephaniah is actually a relative of this king. Great, great grandson, if you do the math of how he did the family tree. So Zephaniah is royalty, which means he's related to the other kings too. Now, later, there is a king called Manasseh. And you can read all about this in First and Second Kings, all right? And Manasseh is the bad of the bad. Manasseh, strangely, is a direct descendant of Hezekiah. How does it go from good to bad so quick? Manasseh is the king under which God said, that's it, finally, we're done. Israel will be wiped out. Matter of fact, it's no longer a, if you continue this way, you will be. It's like, no, we're done. Boom. And it looks like it's going to come. But then we come to this boy King Josiah who is 12 years old when he takes the throne. And it seems that Zephaniah was the prophet that was speaking into Josiah's reign. What happens in Josiah's reign is very interesting because it says that there are these priests who are like milling about in the temple and they stumble on a scroll of the Lord, which is basically the Mosaic covenant. And they start reading it and they realize not only how far they have come as leadership, but how far the nation has drifted from what God called them into. Basically, they lost the Bible. And they didn't lose it, but it was like tucked away in the library and no one bothered to read the thing anymore. Keep in mind, Moses commanded that the king had to have the law of God read to him every single day. 
How'd that one go? And you see Israel, Judah, going off the tracks. It's found in Josiah. And under Josiah's reign, you see this, this huge sweeping reform. And it may be that Zephaniah is the one who found it. It may be that Zephaniah is the one who shared it. It may be that hidden is a reference to the scroll of God being lost and this treasured thing is coming out. Just some of the context that surrounds this prophet. But it's the last final death row of Judah before exile. And it's a reprieve, if you will. Because under Josiah, they do repent and God staves off the calamity. But Josiah's reign ends around 601 BC, give or take. And if the exile is in 587 BC, with the first wave taken out in 596 BC, you can see how close we are to that mark. Is this making sense? Are you following somewhat of the historic picture and what Zephaniah is speaking into? All right. You can read about the prophet Zephaniah in other places of the Bible. Just open up a program like BibleGateway.com, type in Zephaniah, and it'll give you mentions in Kings and in um, Jeremiah, actually, and other places. But what I'd like to do now is to shift to reading it. Look for these treasures of hidden, uh, these themes, rather, of hidden, treasure, things like that, protected. Look for the motifs of judgment. Look for the ideas of remnant in God reserving a piece back. Look for the judgment. on it. Familiarize yourself with it, and then we'll come back up for air. All right, finish her up if you need to. That's fine, but I'm going to jump in. Get utterly lost and confused? Yeah, of course you did, because it's a minor prophet, and you know you're not reading it if you didn't. So let me help you, again, find a path through the forest to follow what's going on now that you know some of the context. We've already read the opening passages. I will sweep everything away. We see this, this, this widespread judgment coming on on what Zephaniah calls the face of the earth. So the known world of the time is going to be wiped away in devastation. You come to verse 5, and you say, you see Zephaniah say, Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. We remember that day of the Lord is one of those key load-bearing phrases that we find in the prophets. And this time, it does not look good, right? If you jump over to like verse 14, 15, 16, 17, you're seeing that this day of the Lord, the great day that's coming, is going to be a day of wrath in verse 15, a day of distress, of anguish, a day of trouble, ruin, darkness, and gloom. Because one of the things that will happen on the day of the Lord is evil and sin will finally be judged. So we go back to verse 5 and he says, be silent, because the day of the Lord is near. And he says, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. What's the metaphor here? We talk about sacrifice metaphorically. But in the biblical world, you need to think about sacrifice literally. And when you literally sacrifice something, what are you doing? You're killing it, right? And you're killing it for the purpose of offering it up to be it uh, you know, a god or, 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 or some divine being 
or to Yahweh you see among the people of God or, or to a king, what is he saying metaphorically here? I have prepared a sacrifice and I have consecrated those who have been invited. I'm speaking to Judah, so you are not the invited ones, all right? Who's Judah? The sacrifice. I am going to offer you up. And I have anointed and prepared those who have been invited that are going to overthrow you. Yeah, that's the prophecy. Judah, I am, I am slaughtering you on the altar. And very literally, they will be slaughtered in Jerusalem. This is what Zephaniah is saying. If you don't like that, take it up with Zephaniah. That's what it says. I will punish the princes and the king's sons and those clad in foreign cities. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violent and deceit. It sounds very pagan, doesn't it? On that day, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. What's he talking about here? Well, let me. what, what if I was to say it this way? Imagine Judah, or Jerusalem, is Chicago. It would read something like this. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the upper loop. Wailing will come from Logan Square and a loud crash from the lakefront. Wail you who live, uh, you see what I'm doing kind of there? He's just mentioning places that you would know in Jerusalem. This is a judgment against them. At that time in verse 12, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. So we see judgment, judgment, the day of the Lord is coming, right? I like verse 17. I will bring distress on the people. They will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their sacrifice, their blood will be poured out like dust. Their entrails, may I translate literally? I need, I need a 100% yes buy-in. Their entrails like shit. That's what it says. All right? If you don't like it, take it up with Zephaniah. Forgive me, but the Bible is far more visceral than English translations make it. And think about when you sacrifice. The intestine, I mean, I got to get you visceral on this. The intestines spill out. Think of the blood. I mean, can you imagine taking someone to church back in like 600 BC, like your kids? I mean, our kids complain because it's boring. There you're scarred for life. I mean, just the blood and the squealing and the screams, but that's what it was. It was a sacrificial system. And he's saying, this is what I'm doing. He goes on. And the Tauntaun, yeah, right. Yeah, if, if you don't have the vision of Luke Skywalker and the Tauntaun and the Empire Strikes Back, which is the best of the Star Wars movies, right, comes spilling out. And that was scarring to those of us who saw it at five years old. And Yeah, yeah. But here's, here's the hinge. Here's the hinge, and it's 2-3, and maybe you'll see it. Seek the Lord who? Who? The humble of the land. You who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden. 
treasured, protected. It says sheltered here. It is a different word, but are you seeing the connectivity of themes? On the day of the Lord's anger. Because what you constantly see through the prophets is despite this, this, this grandiose, visceral picture of judgment, the invitation of God always in the middle of it to repentance. And that even though the land will be judged, and even though you will be affected by the sins of others when judgment is sweeping upon you, that doesn't mean that you are disqualified as part of the mass. Because you, you specifically, God is calling you to repent. And it's often the meek, it's often the humble, it's often the broken. Humble, of course, doesn't just mean an attitude, but it also kind of often refers to like a, a state of being in the Bible in terms of like, your, your, your socioeconomic state, like you're the poor, you're the ostracized, you're the outcast, you're the, the despised in society. But of course, it has to be attitudinal as well, because you can be an outcast and despised and poor and still be haughty. And the Bible is clear about that as well. But those of you who are broken and broken, those of you who are humble, be humble. Turn to me, because even though this devastation is coming, I have not forsaken my promise to you. And that doesn't mean that your life will be prosperous. That doesn't mean that you will be protected. And that doesn't mean that you will live in the most prosperous country, be it Judah or America or wherever else, because of it. But I will stay deeply in connection in covenant with you. And this is really the driving theme that Zephaniah is is speaking to. It's almost like he's given up on the nation. But now he's speaking to the individuals, those who will listen, going, this is coming. But don't lose heart, because as bad as this will be, you can still seek God, even though the institution, the church, the religiosity, the nation, the culture has gone completely a different Way. And suddenly you start to realize it is a far more timely and relevant message than first glance would dare you to believe. The rest goes through and you see like headers against Philistia, against Moab, against Cush, against Assyria. Yahweh is an equal opportunity offender. It's not just judgment on Jerusalem, but all of the surrounding nations who find themselves in the exact same place. And this is nothing new with the prophets, right? We saw this with Amos. He's promising judgment at all the satellite countries around Judah, and then he spirals it in to them. Zephaniah is doing the same thing because then in chapter 3, he comes back to Jerusalem. Woe to the city of oppressors. Look at what he calls Jerusalem. A city of oppressors. Rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in Yahweh. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves. Which, you know, it's really cool when we live in 21st century America to be a wolf or a lion. And we even, like, put them, like, in our kids' bedrooms, like, when they're two years old, because that isn't terrifying. And, like, put them on their shirts and, like, grandma crochets them in. But like when you're in the ancient world, that, that's not what you want, right? These are horrible, horrific beasts. Big bad wolf kind of stuff, all right? 
Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to God's law. The Lord with her, within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every new day he does not fail, yet the unrighteous know no shame. This ain't God's fault. Every day, God is reaching out with his message, with his word, is the idea behind it. You just, it's not that you don't even know. You just don't even have shame anymore. You know, and you don't care. Right? And it finally brings us to verse 9. But after all this has happened, look right before the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Right before, right after this happens, then. And I would even circle then or highlight then if you're on a phone app or something. It's a major shift. Then will I purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. I have to bring you through this time of judgment for the nation, the people of God, however you want to put it, to be renewed, restored, purified is the language again. And the rest is this almost like, it feels like bipolar shift. It's just two promises of hope, two promises of blessing, to promises of compassion, to promises of nurturing of Yahweh, which I think to anyone at the face of doom and gloom should be a source of incredible hope because you see throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, which the minor prophets above all accentuate, that even in judgment, God still offers hope. Even in suffering, God still offers hope. Even under punishment, God still offers hope. And Zephaniah is the final prophet, final minor prophet, him and Jeremiah, to give this message before it all comes crashing down. So next Sunday, we shift to the other era, still the minor prophets, Haggai, but to the other side of the exile divide to see how God's message shifts through the prophets because of how the landscape has shifted to where the people are at. So before you break, what I'd encourage you to do is say hi to someone at one of the tables around you, maybe share one thing you gleaned out of Zephaniah, one thing that troubles you out of Zephaniah, Get your coffee, hit the bathroom, enjoy life, and we'll see you at 10 o'clock. God bless.